Welcome to the Idle Book Club for July 2016. I'm Chris Remo. I'm Sarah Arkadale. On this episode, we're going to be discussing The Sympathizer by Viet Tan Nguyen. Uh, but first, let's quickly introduce what book we'll be reading for the coming month. So our August episode will be on Alice Munro's collection of short stories titled The Runaway, which was published in the early 2000s. And also just a fun aside, today is her July 10th, the day that we're actually recording this podcast, is her 85th birthday. So happy birthday to <laughs> Alice Monroe. I did not know that. Mm-hmm. I'm surprised you haven't been tweeting about it. I have been. Oh. It's a shocker. Well, yes, all right. I'm looking forward to that episode very yeah, much. That'll be fun. Uh, so The Sympathizer, which we're discussing today, is a sort of darkly comic novel about a North Vietnamese sleeper agent who, after the fall of Saigon, uh, flees to the United States in order to keep tabs on the South Vietnamese military unit with which he's embedded. Uh, The book mainly concerns itself with his exploits in the United States uh, as he struggles with his own identity, um, his sort of knowledge of and uh, integration with the West, um, his identity as a person of mixed descent, and... um, it's quite an ambitious work, I would say, as it announces itself quite ambitiously right from the beginning. So what did you think of The Sympathizer, Sarah? Well, I and clearly a lot of other people thought that this book was really excellent. It has, since its publication, won several awards, including both the Pulitzer and uh, the Edgar Allan Poe Award, which I believe is the first time the same novel has done something like that um it won a a major literary award but also the edgar Allan poe award is a major genre fiction award um so this book is clearly hitting the mark for a lot of people and and i thought overall it was it was really excellent and he's a professor of what did you say english and american studies i believe so yeah at a university in in california so he definitely has experience with writing, although not with this kind of long-form fiction writing. Um, so <laughs> congratulations to him. <laughs> Apparently, when they announced the Pulitzer, he found out from either Facebook or, or Twitter. He was like, that. that's how he, that, that's the world that we live in yep. now where this, uh, this author just, he, Twitter told him that he won the Pulitzer. <laughs> um, yeah, I thought that this book was great. So speaking of the the Edgar Allan Poe Awards, that's a very odd to me. That's that's interesting. They I I was looking at the Wikipedia page um, for the Edgar Allan Poe Awards, and it says they honor the best in mystery fiction, nonfiction, television, film, and theater. So it's a mystery oriented award. And what's interesting about this book is that it's sort of it is kind of a mystery in the sense that it opens with a we're presented, we the reader are presented with a mystery, which is why is the the narrator of this novel in confinement, seemingly by communist forces. He refers to this this mysterious commandant several times in his in his first person account, which we can which I assumed anyway was a was a, a communist figure of some sort. He is also uh, a communist, and so that to me was a mystery. But he the character himself is not ever embroiled in any sort of 
mystery situation. In fact, much of the novel deals with fairly mundane concerns, right? I mean, he occasionally is called upon to engage in high stakes spycraft and assassination, but those are almost the exceptions rather than the rule. And he seems very ill at ease with those assignments. I don't know. What do you, what do you make of the of this book being positioned as sort of a piece of spy fiction? Because it it didn't feel that way to me, and I don't I don't say that as a negative thing, but it it's definitely not how I received it. I took it to mean because it has some thriller aspects. Sure. Although you're right that it's not um, similar to a lot of traditional spy novels that that almost feels like an afterthought to the issues that the book decides to... Mm-hmm. It's like to, a framing device. Mm-hmm. The the aspects of the spy work that I really appreciated was even though the, the narrator character, who I can't remember if we mentioned, goes unnamed for the entire right. novel, mm-hmm. um, even though he views himself, he presents himself as an, an incredibly intelligent, um, well-read, well-spoken individual who is a great assistant to the South Vietnamese general um, whom he serves, when it actually comes time to carry out, um, I guess it's not spy work when he's tasked with assassinating other South Vietnamese people. Because I, mean, he, I think it's due in part his kind of analytical skills and intelligence that those things are challenging for him, right? right because that, his compatriot Bon has no such compunctions and chooses to see the world i think in a more straightforward way right well bond has gone through this yeah of course crazy traumatic experience where his wife and child were murdered um so that's understandable but i i appreciated the fact that um when it actually came time for this character to, to really get his hands dirty with um I mean, murder, that there was actual uh, questioning and, and moral and ethical dilemmas that he was facing, which you would expect a normal human being to take issue with having to assassinate um, innocent people. And, and I enjoyed, um, so he, you know, he assassinates two. He assassinates, he assassinates uh, Sonny, the newspaper man. Oh and, right, but it's Bond sort who of kills. sort party to the assassination. Mm-hmm. He indirectly of the crapulent major. Right, which is an amazing name. <laughs> um, and I enjoy. Hopefully, not his name. It's an amazing um, turn of phrase. I yeah. Guess, yeah. Uh, and and those two figures uh, proceed to to haunt him mm-hmm. for the rest of the novel, and and I thought that that was handled really well. And I agree. There's there's a moment where the uh, during a a dinner the. Um, the major's head is on the table and it was presented so, so much as it was, it was presented so fleetingly that for a second, I almost said, what on earth? Like did the general literally display that truck? Like, I mean, obviously not. It was mm-hmm. obviously a vision, but it was so um, subtle when it was, mm-hmm. when the, when he had the first one of those that I was actually really taken by it. Yeah. There's a great moment towards the end of the book, I believe, when when they've returned to, to Vietnam to go on the, what is basically a suicide mission um, where the, the narrator has a vision of Sonny and the, the major in a car with him. And it also felt so just matter of fact that, again, first I had a similar reaction where for a second I thought that this, that he, this was literally happening. Um, 
but obviously it's just these guilty visions that he he the the narrator continues mm-hmm. to have uh so and and you know we discover speaking of guilt we discover at the end of the novel that he, the narrator has been carrying this specific guilt about his position as a spy that he finally is is forced to confess to after a year of of torture this this book is structurally very interesting to me because um i was saying to you earlier that you could almost view it as a collection of of short stories because it's so distinctly segmented where the in some cases even long stories right um like novellas almost <clears throat> yeah. uh because it's it starts off in in vietnam um and there's this big action scene where they have to flee saigon for america and then there's this just long stretch of time where the narrator is just in america doing general spying on the south vietnamese that he's with but otherwise the main focus is how he and his fellow vietnamese citizens are attempting to rebuild their lives essentially after their country has uh fallen to this opposing force and then there's I I feel like it's a hundred pages or something of the novel that's just in the Philippines where he's making a movie with an American right. director, and then the novel r- returns to to Vietnam for this. Um, is it Vietnam or is it Cambodia? Or- they, right, they so they Thailand, go to. It's really they go to all no they go to okay. all those countries. Okay, okay, yeah, good. they they crazy. they start off in Thailand and then they they cross into Vietnam over the Cambodian, okay. um, or is it Laos? They they cross over in another through another country's border and then it ends um he's in he's been captured and he's in this north vietnamese re-education camp for the the final mm-hmm. portion of the novel and it's just and that's basically an existential that's almost like a surreal existential it, passage at that point i i read it described as a, a kafka i mean everyone yeah. i mean everyone, that word is so overused yeah but, but yeah it's a fair but, comparison right um of just it's a fair comparison because it actually deals with that incredibly intense sort of interiority surreal interiority as opposed to just like an interminable thing happens which i think is often when people overuse and and also how no one is named throughout those sections oh man speaking of that so what do you what do you okay this is a very minor point i actually want to after this i want to circle all the way back and talk about the writing of the book overall sure but since since you you mentioned that section and that no one's named what did you make of the of the point at which the book basically turns into a script like formally it's displayed in this script-like manner and it's a total break with how everything in the book is portrayed before then and i i found that in the entire ending of the book kind of difficult to follow i'm sure intentionally just from a pure plot standpoint because it's so subjective and so surreal that that formalistic touch made the whole thing seem even more like theatrical and uh, removed from reality. I don't know. Um, I mean, I liked it because that whole last section is so removed from everything that happens before it and, and having it structured in this um, new way just reinforces that to you as a reader. That's the section where he finally admits to what he saw right with, with the, the, the other the other the agent, other spy right, yeah. um and that was really difficult yeah that um, was an intense 
passage. I, I, I have something that I want to talk about okay. with that. But, well, go ahead then. Um, but just to quickly oh, wrap sure. up the, the structure, I mean, everything that happens while he's slowly being um, tortured in this prison camp and then, you know, basically in the end, I mean, we can talk about what we think happens in the end, but it seems like he he was legitimately re-educated um Mm -hmm. and and i like that the the way that the book is structured um for those final passages like really goes hard into this this character's like unraveling in that way because like the book is coming apart as the character comes apart especially given what uh sort of incredibly overtly and self-awarely confident character the, right. i mean the the narrator of this book goes out of his way i think as you mentioned maybe to constantly declare his own intelligence um sort of uh, eloquence and mastery of thought and language um you know i mean seemingly deservedly so for the prowess, most part but right but for for someone who goes so out of his way to constantly um declare this in part born out of insecurities of the you know circumstances of his birth and so on um that made that section all the more i think intense and effective because he's completely stripped of any ability to use those skills right i mean he's he's clearly incredibly proud of his his mind and that's that's the the final thing that he loses surrenders basically Mm -hmm. yeah right so what did you want to mention about his recollected you know the recollection of the scene with the other agent right so a couple things well I mean, really quickly at the, you know, at the beginning of the novel, he introduces the fact that he um, ran into another North Vietnamese spy. And since he is a sleeper agent, he wasn't able to reveal himself and, and was indirectly complicit in this other spy's capture. And at, at first, when, when this is introduced, we don't really know what became of her although you can assume because she was caught right clearly not good things right um and then at the end of the novel his his torture is in part to get him to confess to what he he witnessed happened to her and you know basically and to his own lack of action right and you know what happened was that he watched her be um like very violently um gang raped by other south vietnamese uh, police officers while he was in the the room with them as they were questioning her um and it's in an intense scene um you know I, I anytime rape is used in fiction you have to be really careful because it's such a um violent action and i don't think that this was a particularly fun part of the book to read but i i thought like if you're gonna include this it was done like just about as well as as you could hope for um and the thing that i wanted to mention was that it i it's an interesting parallel between what happens on the the movie set mm, i was just gonna say that yeah, yeah um so at, at one point in the book this the narrator um becomes an assistant to this american director like who, a consultant sort of or, right a, yeah a like cultural an authenticity, authenticity yeah. advisor basically is that what they call him no i don't know what they call him but that's basically what he is right and um it's a it's a movie that that uh it's you know a movie about the vietnam war 
that Nguyen has admitted is was influenced by his opinions of Apocalypse Now. I mean, he didn't really need to admit it. The, sure. the final words of the this false film are the horror, the horror, <laughs> which, you know, a direct reference to the horror, the horror. So, I mean, I, I, honestly, like it was so overt that I, I kind of found it to be a little cartoonish. Sure. But I revised that opinion and I'll, I'll talk about that in a second. Yeah, we'll have to your, talk about yeah. the movie. Um, yeah. But, you know, the, the, one of the... Um, more gruesome scenes in the movie is um, this South Vietnamese woman being gang raped by North Vietnamese soldiers that no one on set but the actors and the director involved are actually allowed to witness. So the narrator doesn't even see that scene until a full year later when he's in... Right, when he sees it screened. Right. And um, so this book, you know, you have this main character who is straddling both sides of this north-south Vietnamese divide like even though he is a northern Vietnamese spy he still clearly has empathy for um the south Vietnamese people especially his his friend Bon right and he's also described as being um this half well I, he's not described he literally is half Vietnamese half French which also kind of ostracizes him ostracizes him from his fellow Vietnamese people because he is he, he's not full-blooded and he's obsessed with this divide between Eastern and, and, and Western um, cultures anyway and he's obsessed with Western obsessions of, of with sort East. of naive Western obsessions about that right in turn so there's all this duality presented in the novel and then it ends with he has watched on film this fake rape of a woman by um, these these characters who are playing North Vietnamese soldiers. And then he, like, retells the story of witnessing a rape of a woman by South Vietnamese soldiers. And so, I mean, that, that's really it, right? It's just, it was an interesting... So something that struck me about the way the film was portrayed, there are a couple moments in the book where the uh, kind of satirical elements became so inflated that they sort that they it felt to me as though they were becoming out of step with the otherwise very grounded um, telling of the events plot events of the book right and one of them to me was the uh, depiction of the um, uh, the film which in the in, in the book is called the Hamlet and you know as you say is a is a reference to Apocalypse Now, but also all the other American films depicting the Vietnamese more from an American perspective. And then it, I, and then the more I think thought about it, the more it it occurs to me. Okay, it's not so much that he's portraying that the that the author of this book is kind of overinflating his his the satire of Apocalypse Now. I mean that that might be happening on a literal level, but what's really going on is the sort of um, equal and opposite reaction to the way that uh, American, you know, we as Americans and, and Hollywood and America in general um, recontextualize all of its involvement in conflicts such as the Vietnam War as being essentially American, right? Like the Vietnam War is a war that America basically lost. Um, but our understanding, even our understanding of the of anti-war reactions to to the Vietnam War are presented fully in an American context. So even a, a, a movie like Apocalypse Now, which um, uh, Viet Thanh Nguyen, the author of this book, 
has acknowledged is a great movie as a film a ch- sort of a- approaches all of its a- attitudes to war and this war in particular um, without internalizing any of the actual Vietnamese perspective. You know, he, there's a thing he said in an interview that, Sarah, I know you also listened to on Fresh Air, um, where he, he stresses Vietnam is a country, not a war. And I think in the United States, you say Vietnam and people instantly think, ah, the Vietnam War. Um, and so I think it's really, I think that, I think that makes the parallel of these two of the, the, the sort of film depicted rape and the recollected actual rape in the fiction even more powerful because there's the one that only exists to um, sort of inflame American attitudes to the war, even if they're sort of anti-war in some form or fashion to make it acceptable when the american soldiers eventually just massacre all of the sure that's part of it but even beyond like even that even if you so here's here's the thing that i that i had to sort of come realize and it's sad that i didn't previously but like even if you watch an anti-war film and even if the film does not is not claiming it's acceptable for americans to be committing atrocities in war it's being depicted as unacceptable from the perspective of an American filmmaker making movies fully suffused with American thought, whether it's liberal or conservative or whatever. It's like how one of the characters in the book, it's like at the end, right? When he's he's talking, I, I think it's the commandant. I can't remember if it's the commandant or the commissar. I think it's the commandant. And the, the narrator says, like, don't you understand? Like, I'm anti-American. Can't you tell from everything I've told you? And... The other character says, we aren't American or anti... Like, to be anti-American, you have to basically be American. Like, anti-Americanism is is like a cultural subset of American. And, like, that, that to me, was, like, the mind-blown moment, right? Which, again, is, like, maybe sad to to admit. But even the, like, American anti-war movie, even if it completely condemns the role of the United States in such a conflict is still fully within like the American cultural perspective and context. And that like that to me ended up being what this book was about. Like the the this entire book feels like an attempt to reclaim the perspective of something that is fundamental like fundamentally belongs to a different country but has been basically culturally like absorbed by America. And that was like very fascinating to me and that like sort of once I sort of like had that thought, I mean, not that it's my thought, but once that sort of hit me, it like colored everything in the rest of the book in a way that was very fascinating to me. Anyway, sorry to have gone on so long for that, but I was trying to like no, piece no. that together in my head. Yeah, I I definitely agree that that that, that is a major focus of this book. Um, it's interesting because I think uh, books of this type have definitely been written in in the United States for many decades, but always from the perspective of um, white men in this country. Um, Something that I was kind of struck by is there's a lot of understandable anger behind this book, right? And I can't... It feels very angry. Right. And, and, And that's not... Um, meant as a negative. I mean, I think it's it's completely understandable why somebody in this position would would feel 
um, these strong emotions, right? And um, I, I was reading one review of this book where it it mentioned, um, so there, there's a scene where the narrator has sex with a, a squid, I think it is. Um, oh, as a kid, yeah. Right, that he later eats. And the uh, the review that I, I was reading mentioned how that is, a, is similar to a scene in Portnoy's Complaint, which is an early Philip Roth book of the 50s or 60s, where the, the main character, Portnoy, has sex with a piece of liver that hmm. um, I think his mother eats um, well, during it's so dinner. so similar, except that in this case... This sort of protects his mother from right. that. Yeah. Um, but anyway, uh, so seeing that that similarity got me thinking more about this this style of book that's from this very um, like almost aggressive male mm-hmm. perspective, which is what early Philip Roth like very physically, violently, like sexually mm-hmm. charged, and it's something that we have kind of accepted we, we we've got as a society as a literary society we've gone through cycles right where um we initially accepted these kinds of novels and i think today if a white man tried to write a follow-up to portnoy's complaint it just wouldn't make sense in the the society that that we currently have um but you know now there's space for non-white male perspectives on not similar issues because Portnoy's complaint is really mostly about sexual ag- aggression, but there's just just the kind of similar sure. male like power and anger and frustration that um, in in the sympathizer feels completely fresh and new and interesting to me because it's a, a kind of male perspective that is just not common in mainstream writing, certainly not in mainstream award-winning writing um and i'm really grateful that books like this are starting to become more popular and and well received yeah i'm i'm totally unfamiliar with the writing of philip roth i have to admit so (laughs) he's fine but but i but i know what you mean Mm -hmm. right i mean i think that uh, i and i think when that when that kind of perspective does surface now from your kind of standard white male author i think it typically comes is more likely to bring with it like a certain kind of self-awareness that like is being used to some other some other end as as this is right i mean like this is being used to you know in in that fresh air review he talks about how many of many vietnamese refugees brought with them violence and domestic abuse born out of these an experience that was essentially like emasculating on a broad scale and um, just infantilizing both in the course of the Vietnam War and also in the United States as they were as as refugees uh, were sort of forcibly um, spread across the country in, in a, some kind of like um, integration, the like forced integration attempt. Basically. So, I mean, there's, a, you know, he, he talks about a lot of that sort of male... Um, like repression and frustration, mm-hmm. um, but I think gets to a really interesting uh, source, like root cause of it that speaks to a lot of important and like vital issues. Yeah. Um, so I want to talk about the the writing style of this book, which is one of the one of the few components of this book about which I'm kind of internally split. Um, I would uh, not very split. I, I think it's quite impressive and good 
on balance. But the uh, so the, this book is written. I mean, it's <laughs> I guess I'd say it's very written. Like it's it is it, you, overly written. I maybe maybe not overly implies that it's a problem, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but I would say it's just very noticeably written in the sense that it feels as though the author labored over every sentence and found the well, perfect metaphor, the perfect simile. I know what you're going to say, mm-hmm. right? In the in the uh, interrogation at the end, it is revealed that that is literally what has happened in the framing mechanism mm-hmm. to this conf- this written confession he is like labored over it again and again that feels like a little bit of, <laughs> of a, a cheap but yeah. by the way um you know when you get to the the end i mean the, the entire novel is not all of, of his written confession but the major the overwhelming majority of it is right i think it technically all is because even the stuff after the confession ends it sounds oh, as though right. that was further written. He writes, yeah, yeah, you're right. So basically the entire novel is meant to be this confession. And I like at, w- at one point when I realized what was going on, you know, that he's literally writing this book to be read by his um, his uh, tormentors. It's like, oh, this this is almost comical. Like, can you imagine um, having a prisoner and and they hand you this like right, well, page after like, page of, and they express frustration about that that it's so long. Well, not that it's so long, but that he seems to be focusing on the wrong things. Mm-hmm. You know, like he should be focusing on the things he's he's learning, confessing, and acknowledging. Not all of this, other, you know, like that that is that is explicitly brought up right by his by his captors. Um, although I think. One of the successes of of that passage is that I like the like the narrator. I was also confused about what exactly these people wanted. Mm-hmm. I actually, here's here's a minor digression, and I do really want to get back to the writing style thing. But for, so you're someone who who studied Russian um, and know a lot more about Soviet Russia than I do. I don't know how much you know about sort of communist um, history in particular. Um, it, did 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 this passage sort of resonate with you in any way like mm. for that reason like there was it definitely felt as though there was some kind of enigmatic unknowable um kind of dissolution of self communist ideology that was sort of trying to be like presented in the narrative in that passage by way of the commissar and the commandant but i don't know if that's anything real or if that's just as like a consumer of popular culture that I've internalized this like that attitude towards the idea of re-education, you know, in a communist system. I I just have no idea. I have no clue at all. Um, I don't know that I've ever read anything written in in communist Russia that explicitly has scenes of, of a character being re-educated in this way. I'm I'm embarrassed to admit that I've never finished Gulag Archipelago. Um, but I have read the. <laughs> You know the the much shorter Solzhenitsyn, which is uh, one day in a life of Ivan Denisovich, which follows the character Ivan um, on a at a gulag for an an entire day and just goes through kind of what that that feeling is like to be in this prison camp. Um, and I, I think uh, w- while the 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 torment is not the same, I think the kind of general feeling is similar um but i i haven't read those novels in so long that i i feel mm-hmm. really like 
dubious about making these (laughs) connections um but but yeah because like you know like we said before even though kafkaesque is a a way overused term at this point it it feels like all that that style of just absurdity and oppressive bureaucracy definitely all feel all those books that we've mentioned like they feel connected in that way um and i guess you could assume that nguyen is like probably even though he didn't grow up in the communist vietnam is probably you know pretty familiar with what that must have been like so it well or he just did his homework right right or or not who knows but the end of the book includes a a preposterously comprehensive bibliography or or, or not necessarily he is a professor but but, uh, yeah but uh list of acknowledgments of works you've read including seemingly like 20 works about the creation of apocalypse now um, I was actually shocked by how many more of the works he listed overall were of Western origin rather than uh, Vietnamese. But, um, I mean, you know, he's a professor of English and American studies, I guess, so it doesn't, it's not that outrageous. But, um, but yeah, who knows? He, I, I, do, I do think he said he hasn't personally read any such confessions, but mm-hmm. he did research them. I don't know. You know what this kind of reminded me of, and and, and maybe this is just because of um, the the Asian connection. But when when I was in college, um, and I, I you know I sadly can't remember the name of of this uh, book that I read, but we we read um, a novel that I believe is based off of true events of a North Korean spy who a, a young woman who was responsible for blowing up a plane of South Korean workers and she gets caught um, and is held prisoner by the South Koreans and, and I think is going to be killed by them. She basically mm. like details the, the life that she had in North Korea and explains what would lead a person to willingly go through with something so horrible. And that that is a definitely like of a similar style of of writing and it, it it also has a lot of interesting exposures um to the conflict between like western and eastern society where the character who's grown up in in North Korea goes to Germany or you know some european country and is completely like overwhelmed by like the western excess sure. that that she witnesses okay so through the magic of editing you have looked up <laughs> the the book that that you were uh, remembering and uh, it's called The Tears of My Soul by Kim Hyun Hui, and it is actually an autobiography, so based on completely true events. Yeah, so way more intense than Yeah, um, I remember suspected. it being really good. Yeah, so I'm anyway, sure. we were talking about the writing in this book. Yes, okay. So um, to get back to that, um, that was a big digression, but I guess in the spirit of this novel, um, <laughs> that's okay. So... I'm gonna I'm gonna put forth two two examples of writing that I, I think speak to my my slight ambivalence about about the writing in this novel. Although I need to just emphasize that as a first novel, I think this is an absolutely amazing um, total. To be total fair, piece this, of writing. this uh, Nguyen has been writing for probably decades at, at this point. If he's a professor, this is his first novel, though. Right? I, I think that's a big. I yeah. think that's a. I don't know. I would never underplay. I would never. I would never underemphasize. Right, the effort mm-hmm. and, and required. But um, anyway, so here here is an example that I thought that to me is like indicative of when maybe he go he went a little far for my taste. So this this is when the narrator is with Lana 
the sort of um, estranged, semi-estranged daughter of the general and the general's wife, referred to only as Madame. And uh, he, in the narrator's words, I quietly quaffed my cognac, discreetly admiring Lana's legs. Longer than the Bible and a hell of a lot more fun, they stretched forever, like an Indian yogi or an American highway, shimmering through the Great Plains or the Southwestern Desert. So there are like four different similes. Right? I mean, like setting aside the fact that it's all being employed to describe a woman's legs, like the the narrator essentially describes almost everything this way, right? Like almost everything has a metaphor or a simile attached to it to a degree. To a, to a degree that is sort of amazing. Like I, it's kind of incredible how fully formed every single sentence in this book is, but also like he describes the same legs as being longer than the Bible, which already expresses their length, then says they stretched forever, which is even more. And then he says, like an Indian yogi, which I guess is like because yogis stretch. And then... (laughs) No, like an American highway, not just an American highway, but one shimmering through the Great Plains or not even just the Great Plains, but possibly even the Southwestern Desert. And like, I don't mean to pick, right? I'm not going to, I wouldn't like go through a book picking apart everything, but like I bring that up only as a microcosm of how like fully metaphored out this book is, right? And and, and you're not buying the suggestion that if, you were imprisoned for a year and forced to rewrite the same novel over and over again. Um, that the, so like, (laughs) is, is that a, (sighs) that doesn't, that doesn't really, I I don't, I don't. So I like that detail. Mm -hmm. And, and I, and again, I want, it's like, is, is Nguyen like that smart or like, are you reading too much? I don't think it matters because I, I don't think you get to just like excuse, I don't think you get to like put a little like one sentence capper mm-hmm. at the end of the book and be like, anyway, that's uh, I, sure. I okay to to sort of um, um I don't know soften what I'm saying though. I would say there are many more cases where the use of of this level of metaphor and simile is incredibly additive to the book, does not detract from it. So here here's just I, I think a really nice. Um, underplayed example of that. I mean, this I find beautiful. So um, this is on page 50 of the the hardcover edition, if uh, if that's the one you have. And if you don't, I'm sorry. By the way, speaking of page numbers, funny note, uh, I, I loved this tiny detail, and I'm really curious about how this was handled in the paperback. At the end of his confession, he makes specific reference to oh, right, the, page like, the 242 pages or whatever proceeding. And I looked down oh, yeah, at the folio the and was really pleased to see, yeah. oh, it's the exact number of pages. I th- and I hope that they modified that in the I think that the they paperback. do yeah. um, in, um, when that occur- something like that occurs. I think that subsequent editions get edited. I mean, I know that that can happen, but you could make either case, right? Mm-hmm. You could say, oh, well, this is the canonical version of the book and in the sort of like magical like platonic purity of the text the fictional memoir is 294 pages and the one you happen to be having in your hand is whatever number it is according to the thing right you could either make that argument or you could say like it's part of the sort of formal joke of the thing that it matches what you're reading and i mean i clearly like that version better but i could imagine an editor making either case 
Um, anyway, so here here's the other the other passage I want I wanted to read. Um, this is this is after landing in in Guam, and uh, Bon has just suffered a, like a terrible loss of his his wife and child. And the narrator says, catatonic on his bunk. Bon would remember nothing of the evacuation playing on television that afternoon and through the next day. Nor would he remember how, in the barracks and tents of our temporary city, thousands of refugees wailed as if attending a funeral, the burial of their nation, dead too soon, as so many were, at a tender 21 years of age. That, to me, is absolutely incredible. Like, the fact that the that the nation in question, um, I guess the Republic of Vietnam, is 21 years old. Like, I had to sit there and think 21 years old. Oh my God. Of course they're referring to like this specific, like political entity, this essentially, you know, like failed attempt to like create this version of Vietnam. Um, and, and seamlessly draw the connection to the age that I don't know, very, you know, one of the most common like ages you hear about soldiers dying at tragically. And the, the way that was all woven together to me is an example of when Nguyen, the author, when his sort of uh, rhetorical gifts are put to their most potent, like that just completely knocked me over. I, I, and then I, as a result, I went and read all about the different incarnations of Vietnam and, you know, was, um, so, I mean, it was also just a, just a great historical detail um, that's totally appropriate in a novel like this, but man, that just, that that killed me in in how tragic and beautiful it was, and so I I don't want to get carried away with my reservations, my occasional reservations about the the writing in this book because on balance I think it's it was quite excellent. Yeah, um, I don't know that I necessarily agree with a criticism that I've seen seen leveled against it, and that you know I said overly written. Um, I I wouldn't necessarily categorize this book in in that way um i i thought it was um completely fine and then you know beautiful in parts for sure um yeah i had i hadn't actually i haven't read any reviews of the book so i didn't i wasn't trying to speak to anyone else's complaints so that was just you know that was the book is so noticeably written that it's sort of probably inevitable right that there are going to be a couple misfires but but yeah, I, I think on 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 the whole, it really sells itself. It quits itself well. That makes me want to read this other passage. <laughs> Go for it. From, um, from the novel on page one seventy two of the hardcover, it says, "How do you know you've made a great work of art? A great work of art is something as real as reality itself, and sometimes even more real than the real." Long after this war is forgotten, when its existence is a paragraph in a school book students won't even bother to read, and everyone who survived it is dead, their bodies dust, their memories atoms, their emotions no longer in motion, this work of art will still shine so brightly it will not just be about the war, but it will be the war. I don't know. I thought that was... I mean, that's a great... That's sort of almost a... Emotions no longer in motion. Yeah. That's that's pretty good. Uh, Yeah. But also that observation is really sort of speaks to the thesis statement of the book, at least to my oh, reading. Right, yeah. You know, I mean, right. This book is more real than reality for sure. Well, sure. But what I mean is that like the, the so much of this book is driven by, I think, the author's um, grievances about how the concept of the Vietnam War uh, is exists largely now as... Um, I don't know, I guess basically appropriated 
cultural artifacts, mm-hmm. right? At like, least to Americans, right? Right, but even, I mean, he, you know, I think even to most of the world outside Vietnam, I would wager, you know, the, the, the power of, of uh, sort of Hollywood um, uh, publicity and, and scale is such that it, it becomes almost ubiquitous. Yeah, um, which is a good segue, I think, to talk more about the the film portion of this novel, which I really enjoyed because it, it, it was kind of almost absurd that just in the center of this spy thriller novel is just going to devote uh, a lot of time to the narrator being on this set and like, expressing his frustration with um, not only these big issues of Vietnamese representation, but just also his minor, like, antagonism he has with the Mm. director. Um, Man, it was such a, like, almost bizarre turn for the book to to take because it felt so, mostly because it went on for for so long. What did you think of the the novel, the author's decision to just, you know, essentially, in, in my mind, to almost take a break from the larger goings on of the of the the plot just to be like okay well here's my apocalypse um, now thesis basically I didn't really it didn't um stick out to me the same way I think it did for you because I had um this may have to do with sort of uh I don't know my pace of reading at different points in the book but the concerns in California o- occupied such a huge um chunk of what this book was for me that a further that sort of a, a an even deeper dive digression didn't seem uh, didn't seem out of step with I guess what had been what had been preceding it. Mm-hmm. Um, but the overtness of the satire was striking to me, and I especially um, appreciate the the fact that we get this like almost um, absurdist depiction of the making of this film, and then later in the book you actually get. A passage that sounds like it could be from a war movie when they return overseas on their you know like you said a suicide mission um that felt to me almost like the um a desire to to depict these like just the horrific reality of war um outside of the context of a hollywood of the hollywood picture so i kind of appreciated that there was that there was that uh the grounding so that the you could they could there could be that recapitulation yeah i don't know i thought it was interesting i was very um i don't know i don't think i knew what to make of it at the time but you know as in my in my earlier huge diatribe about it it clearly stuck in my brain yeah this book is filled with lots of uh little instances that would you could easily imagine being in this bombastic action movie i mean the the whole scene where they they flee saigon is so intense mm-hmm. and specifically yeah. described um you know it's not fun in the way that a lot of action movies are fun because it's um dealing with this you know it's it's from the perspective of these people who are being really affected by what's going on around them but uh it yeah there's like a cinematic quality to Mm -hmm. um many of the events mostly the ones that happen in vietnam that i I thought were just really like powerful to read um and and i thought honestly that uh, the 
the whole movie section of the book was my favorite part oh, of it. That's cool. Uh, just because it was so like almost bizarre to me, and it was mm-hmm. like I I just enjoy. I could have read an entire novel that was just about th- this like farcical thing happening. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah. Well, I think it's safe to say we both enjoyed this novel. Yes. I would be interested to see if this author continues to write fiction. Yeah. It, it, this really feels like his attempt to sort of exercise his... Like everything that he's like going all, on. Yeah, all of his sort yeah. of um, musings and mm-hmm. frustrations with with this entire subject matter. And so in that sense, um, it doesn't necessarily paint an obvious portrait of what... Like you where know, he'll what, go. Yeah, but it was, I mean, an ambitious work that I think I think largely succeeded in its ambitions yeah my hope is that you know now that he it seems like you know reading this and then reading a lot of interviews that he's given now that he's had a a chance to very successfully express Mm -hmm. these strong feelings that he can you know not not that he should feel the need to to move on from the the topics that fascinate him as an author but like i guess one you know to just dull some of the the praise that we've given this book um i, I know you're gonna go out on dulled praise no that's, that's no your conclusion? we'll we'll, <laughs> we'll come back around don't worry um really yeah one one thing that um i think could have been a little bit better about this book is is how all of these these segments you know the vietnamese segments the california segments the philippine segment they, they all c- kind of felt like they they, they were almost separate stories and even though they thematically um mesh together and, and overall i thought the the novel was was pretty co- cohesive and coherent like it almost feels like he, he because he wanted to uh deal with so much that like maybe they should have been in in different books and so my hope is that whatever he if he writes something next that it'll be like a tighter uh plot sure but also he could write another book just like this one and i would read it and think it is good because the sympathizer is good you're welcome pulitzer (laughs) prize committee i was one of their judges (laughs) i didn't even know that yeah impressive this book is good is my blurb nice cool all right so i think that wraps it up for us with the sympathizer next month we're going to be reading uh runaway by alice monroe a short story collection and Quickly, now that we've we've concluded our, our discussion of uh, this month's book, I want to go back to The Man in the High Castle to read one email that was sent to us that uh, unfortunately didn't arrive in time um, to make it onto the recording of that podcast. It arrived after, we, after we'd already recorded it. Uh, but it's from Ethan Edwards, and it speaks to, to something that we mentioned on that episode that I think is, is you know, is not, not really related to The Sympathizer, but I thought it was worth reading. Um, and does does speak to sort of cross-cultural concerns. Do you mind? No. So this is from Ethan Edwards. He says, Hi, Sarah and Chris. Thanks so much for the podcast. I happened upon this ep- week's episode because I'd read The Man in the High Castle, and I wanted to chime in about the question of Chinese influence in a Japanese-dominated society. I don't have an expert level of knowledge on this, but I do live in Japan and studied the history and culture quite a bit, uh, with a focus on the nationalist ideology which came to dominance during the early Showa Pacific War era. 
Somewhat controversially, Japanese culture as a recognizable entity comes out of a Chinese world. The early state was explicitly based on Tang Chinese models, and from the beginning of recorded history there to World War II, Chinese culture was extremely important and Chinese language was known by nearly every educated person. Throughout much of history, official government documents were all written in Chinese, or a form of Japanese explicitly based on classical Chinese, called Kanbun. In addition, most intellectual activity up until the mid-1800s was done either at Confucian institutions or Buddhist temples, which almost exclusively used Chinese. As the I Ching is a Confucian classic, it would have been widely known by scholars, although I do not have any knowledge about uh, more everyday use. Despite the prevalence of Chinese culture, Japan has not always been favorable to the existing state of China. Hideyoshi famously attempted an, an invasion in the late 16th century, and it seems like most regard for China as a present exemplar tapered off sometime around the Kamakura period, 1300 or so. In the 1700s, there was a notable intellectual movement to get away from Chinese studies and focus on native language and heritage. By the time Jap Japan was beginning to engage in imperialistic nationalism in the 1890s, Japan was regarding itself as the chief representative of shared East Asian culture of Japan, China, and Korea. It would be common to assert that Japan had taken its native heritage and ethnic strength and combined those with the best parts of classic Chinese culture. Uh, an example would be presentations made by Japanese scholars concerning traditional music, whereas it was explained that Chinese and Korean audiences explained to Chinese and Korean audiences that Japan's gagaku was the best preserved version of ancient Chinese court music, and that Japan was now the torchbearer, even returning the history of these countries to themselves. So the ideology of the time was to honor the Chinese past of the Han and Tang dynasties, but to insist that Japan had perfected it and combined it with its own separate unique culture. This is what allowed Japanese to write with Chinese characters, use Chinese phrases in their language, but still exhibit cruelty to living Chinese people. The loss of World War II is essentially what ended this. Now the Japanese are very unlikely to know Chinese, especially not classical Chinese. English has become the second language of choice. In addition, Confucian classics are not really regarded with much importance, but in the alternate history of Dick's work, it would make sense that the Japanese imperial government, the whole notion of empire and the emperor, of course, originally coming from China, would spread this culture into a conquered America. The idea of the I Ching specifically becoming popular requires a bit of invention on Dick's part, but I'm not sure anyone in the world would have expected a Confucian classic to be become important in post-war American literature and music either. Hope you find this interesting. Best, Ethan Edwards. We, you know, I think we maybe intuited the tiniest bit of that, but certainly had no no kind of authoritative um, outlook. Man, when we when we read that book, I tried so hard to find interviews or papers written about um, either interviews with Dick or papers written about Man in the High Castle that spoke to like how those decisions were made to to handle the the trajectory of Japanese culture, and I just couldn't find anything. That's um, a shame. That's kind of surprising. Yeah. So if anyone knows of anything where either like Dick is was explaining his decision to to make Japanese culture what it was, or like I don't know scholarly papers on it, I would be really curious to read um because like as a you know well i don't want to start talking about man in the high <laughs> castle anyway maybe so if, if you do have any any source Viet ten when if you have any uh <laughs> if anyone including the author of the sympathizer has any um perspective or links to material on this you can send them to books at idlethumbs.net um also please send us your thoughts on runaway by uh, alice monroe in advance of our upcoming episode um it's really fun to read these thoughts from people uh, who think of all kinds of stuff that does not occur to us. Um, so you can also follow us on Twitter at Idle Book Club. Um, our website is idlebookclub.com, and that has our RSS feed, our iTunes page where you can subscribe, um, 
And uh, again, next month we're reading Runaway by Alice Munro. Thank you so much for joining us. We will talk to you next month. Bye. Bye. Bye.